Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com slash immigration dash review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So without further ado, let's start the review. Looking ahead to this week at the beginning of the month, I thought this was going to be a quiet week, so I was going to publish an interview instead of case reviews. How wrong I was. Only three business days, but six decisions out of the BIA and the circuits, including a mind-bender out of the third on 101A43MI aggravated felonies. And before we get started, I want to thank John Kasravi, Catholic Legal Immigration Network, and Duke University Law for bringing to my attention on the social media sphere that in a one-page unpublished order on December 11th and following Oil's own motion, the Ninth Circuit vacated and remanded matter of E-R-A-L, in which the BIA held, among other things, that, quote, an alien's status as a landowner does not automatically render that alien a member of a particular social group, end quote. So matter of E-R-A-L is not good law. Word up. On to the six cases. First, as we so often do, we're going to start with the BIA, with Matter of Rivera-Mendoza. This case is about crimes of child abuse, child neglect, or child abandonment, under INA Section 237A2EI. Mr. Rivera-Mendoza entered the U.S. without authorization from Mexico. Many years later, in 2012, he was convicted of two counts of child neglect in the second degree, in violation of Oregon Revised Statute Section 163.5451. In immigration court, he was deemed removable, because he was never admitted or paroled. But because he had been in the U.S. for at least 10 years, he applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal, under INA Section 240A-B. A non-citizen is ineligible for non-LPR cancellation if they've been convicted of many crimes, including a crime of child abuse, child neglect, or child abandonment, as defined at INA Section 237A2EI. The IJ and then the BIA held that Mr. Rivera-Mendoza's Oregon conviction matched that definition, and so 
denied non-LPR cancellation relief. But then on petition for review to the Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit remanded the matter to the BIA on OIL's own motion for further analysis and explanation, which the BIA has now provided in this case, denying relief again. The BIA held that Oregon Revised Statute 163.5451 is categorically, meaning in all instances, a crime of child abuse, child neglect, or child abandonment. Prior BIA precedent defines that term as, quote, any offense involving an intentional, knowing, reckless, or criminally negligent act or omission that constitutes maltreatment of a child or that impairs a child's physical or mental well-being, including sexual abuse or exploitation, end quote. And with child endangerment type offenses specifically, quote, a key consideration is the risk of harm to the child, end quote. In this case, the BIA held for the first time that to qualify as a Section 237A2EI offense, a child neglect-type criminal statute like the one here, quote, must require proof of a likelihood or reasonable probability that a child will be harmed, not a mere possibility or potential for harm, end quote. The Oregon statute met that definition here because it requires that a person leave a child under 10 years old unattended such that they, quote, may be likely to endanger the child's health or welfare, end quote. This suffices because the Oregon state courts have defined that term to include, at a minimum, that the, quote, risk of that harm occurring was substantial and unjustifiable, end quote. So this whole analysis is pretty statute-specific. This decision here about the Oregon crime aligns with the BIA's prior decisions regarding a New York statute and a Colorado statute, and it's contrary to a Ninth Circuit's holding concerning a Nevada child neglect statute. And indeed, the BIA specifically distinguished that Ninth Circuit decision, Alvarez Serratino v. Sessions, because the Oregon statute, and unlike the Nevada statute in that case, requires criminal negligence rather than merely simple negligence, and it requires more than a, quote, reasonable foreseeability or mere possibility of harm, end quote. So, another decision in the complicated world of crimes of child abuse, neglect, or abandonment. But here's the argument to make when analyzing similar crimes in other states. So again, and succinctly stated, the BIA held in this case that the Oregon crime satisfied INA Section 237A2EI, quote, because the statute requires criminal negligence and a showing of more than a mere possibility of or potential for harm, end quote. So if you're going to argue against a similar finding in the future with a different state's child neglect statute, there's your standard to combat. And that is matter of Rivera Mendoza. Next, we have Rad v. Attorney General of the U.S., published by the Third Circuit on December 21, 2020. This is quite the case on aggravated felonies, specifically a Section 101A43U conspiracy to commit a Section 101A43MI fraud or deceit plus $10,000 loss offense. Even the Third Circuit called it complicated and tapped the Georgetown Law Center for pro bono assistance. Here we go. 
On the subject of I learn something new in immigration law every week, this case concerns the Canned Spam Act. Note, not about canned spam. Rather, that act, broadly speaking, aims to prevent email spam, a cause very dear to my inbox's heart. Quote, the act empowers consumers to sue marketers who relay misleading messages or refuse to honor opt-out requests, enables prosecutors to bring criminal charges against spammers who embrace especially abusive tactics, end quote. Two of those abusive tactics are relevant here. One, spoofing, where the email manipulates its sender information to get past the spam filter, and two, registering the email sender's domain using a false identity. Both are illegal. Mr. Rad, great name by the way, is an LPR, and he did both. That makes him one of only a few cases to ever actually be prosecuted under this statute. In something that would make the Wolf of Wall Street proud, quote, Rad and several co-conspirators acquired shares of penny stocks, pumped the prices of those stocks by bombarding investors with misleading spam emails, and then dumped their shares on the market at a profit, end quote. The Third Circuit will refer to this, and I promise these are not my words, as the, quote, pump and dump scheme, end quote, later in the decision. So Mr. Rad did all those things, but as so often happens, he wasn't ultimately convicted of that. He was convicted of conspiring to commit false header spamming in violation of 18 U.S.C. section 1037A. The pre-sentence report, or PSR, used to recommend sentencing to federal judges, estimated that the conspiracy netted $2.9 million in illicit gains, but that the losses attributable to Mr. Rad, quote, could not be reasonably determined, end quote. The federal judge issued a 35-month sentence as to the conspiracy conviction with a 71-month sentence in total, but the record is silent as to what the judge determined as to the actual amount of loss attributable to Mr. Rad or why the judge increased the sentence so much. In removal proceedings, the IJ and then the BIA deemed the conviction an aggravated felony, and LPRs are removable if they've been convicted of an aggravated felony. Under INA Section 101A43U, a conspiracy to commit any aggravated felony is an aggravated felony itself. In this case, DHS alleged that the conviction was a conspiracy to commit an INA Section 101A43MI aggravated felony, which is an offense that involves fraud or deceit with a loss to victims of over $10,000. Now, under this particular aggravated felony, the Supreme Court has held that the fraud or deceit analysis is subject to the categorical approach, while the $10,000 amount of loss analysis allows for the circumstance-specific approach. Under that latter approach, courts can look to a variety of reliable documents to determine whether the conviction resulted in a loss to the victims of over $10,000. In this case, the IJ and the BIA determined that DHS had met its burden. In pertinent part, the BIA held, essentially, that because the federal judge upped the sentence from 35 to 71 months in total, the federal judge must have done so based on a finding that significant amounts of money were lost to the victims. On petition, the Third Circuit first addressed fraud or deceit, beginning with a helpful although pretty expansive overview of the definition of deceit. At base, the Third Circuit defines deceit as, quote, the act of intentionally giving a false impression, end quote, 
and in this case found, as a matter of first impression, that the Can Spam Act conviction here meets that definition. The reasoning gets into the weeds pretty heavy, and while the Third Circuit pretty much conceded that the statute is facially overbroad, it construed the statute narrowly to avoid constitutional First Amendment concerns, to hold that, quote, so long as individuals and businesses refrain from inserting false contact information in contexts where internet users have come to expect accuracy, their conduct comports with prevailing norms and with the Can Spam Act, end quote. Defined that way, the statute only criminalizes deceit, and thereby satisfies the first of two prongs for an INA Section 101A43MI finding. Hold on tight, guys, because we're just getting started. But the Third Circuit then vacated and remanded the BIA on the over $10,000 amount finding, and in so doing, went on for like 10 pages about the difference between federal sentencing and the INA which I believe necessary reading to combat a Section 101A43MI aggravated felony allegation for future cases. First, the Third Circuit chastised the BIA for working backwards from Mr. Rad's sentencing, fixating on the fact that the court enhanced his sentence from 35 months to 71 months, which the BIA determined must have equated to a six-level sentence enhancement, which aligns to a $40,000 or more amount of loss. Quote, having inferred that the district court found Mr. Rad responsible for over $10,000 in loss under the sentencing guidelines, the board presumed it could do the same under the INA, end quote. But the BIA could not. Specifically, INA section 101A43MI requires that the amount of loss be tied to the fraud or deceit conviction. Federal court sentencing does not require that it be tied, and indeed, the reasons for the sentence enhancement need not even be charged in the indictment. Here, the BIA could, quote, only consider losses stemming from the pump-and-dump scheme if the scheme embodies the specific way Mr. Rad committed the Can Spam Act conspiracy count, or if a direct link ties the conduct underlying those counts to investors' losses, end quote. But the BIA didn't make any finding as to how, if at all, the pump-and-dump loss allegation related to the Can Spam Act conspiracy. This proved fatal, and won the case for Mr. Rad. Also, the Third Circuit explained that, although federal courts can increase a sentence based on the gains to the defendant when a loss can't reasonably be determined, the aggravated felony provision at 101A43MI requires just the opposite, a showing of loss to the victims. And finally, although a preponderance of the evidence standard applies in federal sentencing, DHS must establish removability by clear and convincing evidence. Yet another reason the BIA was wrong to sustain removability based on sentencing inferences. The Third Circuit therefore remanded for further analysis on the true amount of loss, if any, intended by Mr. Rad's conspiracy based on the reviewable criminal documents. So, my head is spinning. Hopefully yours is not. Long case and I want to stop, but here's one more thing that I really enjoy, and one more thing on conspiracy aggravated felonies. Although the Third Circuit ended up remanding to the BIA, it did note that, quote, when an agency has had two opportunities to address the legal and factual issues in a case, 
we normally refuse to give it a third bite at the apple, end quote. That's a quote to remember for petitions for review, where, as often occurs and occurred here, oil has already once requested remand to allow the BIA to make its decision even better. And finally, although the court remanded on the amount of loss analysis, the Third Circuit did, quote, join the Second Circuit, Ninth Circuit, and Board in recognizing that a conspiracy or attempt to commit fraud or deceit involving over $10,000 in intended losses qualifies as an aggravated felony, end quote. Note, this doesn't include simply potential losses, but only intended losses. And also note, this is in contrast to a straight Section 101-843-MI aggravated felony, where, quote, the amounts must reflect actual and not merely intended losses, end quote. So remember the distinction in amounts of loss when dealing with a conspiracy to commit a Section 101-843-MI, in contrast to when a Section 101-843-MI offense has already been committed. And that is the very long and complicated Rad v. Attorney General of the U.S. Next, we've got a short case out of the Eighth Circuit, Muhammad v. Barr, published on December 23, 2020. This is another motion to reopen case regarding a Somali individual who was on the ill-fated repatriation flight in December 2017, and who, following litigation by Professor Rebecca Sharpless at the University of Miami, received an opportunity to file a motion to reopen his case. Mr. Muhammad became a conditional lawful permanent resident in 2001, based on his marriage to a U.S. citizen. But he didn't show up to his USCIS interview to remove the condition to his LPR status. And so, as is the law, his conditional status was terminated and he was placed in removal proceedings. He did not appear for his hearing and was ordered removed in absentia in 2011. And seven years later, Mr. Muhammad filed a motion to reopen, arguing that materially changed country conditions had occurred in his home country of Somalia that now made him eligible for asylum and related relief. He brought a variety of claims, primarily related to al-Shabaab. The IJ denied, and then the BIA affirmed. And the Eighth Circuit did too. Although there is no numerical or time bar to motions to reopen based on materially changed country conditions to apply for asylum and related relief, the Eighth Circuit held that Mr. Muhammad failed to show that conditions in Somalia pertaining to al-Shabaab had materially worsened since his immigration court hearing in 2011, when he was ordered removed. Although the court recognized that a non-citizen can satisfy their burden even when conditions were already bad at the time of the order of removal, if, based on a material, quote, escalation of violence and tension, end quote, Mr. Muhammad did not make that showing here. So, the petition was dismissed. Here are two more observations. That the IJ, BIA, and Eighth Circuit reviewed the motion at all is a small victory. I seem to recall a line of cases out there that would bar review of a changed country condition motion to reopen where the non-citizen has been ordered removed in absentia. Although, if I recall correctly, and those cases do exist, they're in the minority. And sticking with in absentia orders, here's an interesting wrinkle in this case. 
Mr. Muhammad didn't appear for his initial master calendar hearing, but the IJ administratively closed the case instead of ordering him removed, based on a finding that the record didn't indicate that he had received proper notice of his hearing. I guess DHS then fixed that error and moved to recalendar, which the IJ granted. And it appears, based on this decision, that Mr. Muhammad actually showed up for the next hearing, but that the IJ then ordered Mr. Muhammad removed in absentia for his failure to appear without good cause at the first hearing. If that's what happened, that's pretty interesting and very unfortunate. And that is Muhammad V. Barr. Next, we have Pojoy de Leon v. Barr, published by the First Circuit on December 21st, 2020. This is a decision about asylum, and it's the first of two First Circuit decisions this week on the nexus requirement for asylum and withholding of removal. Ms. Pojoy de Leon is from Guatemala. She and her minor son entered the U.S. unlawfully in 2014, were detained, and eventually filed for asylum in immigration court. She asserted that she was previously persecuted and feared persecution based on her membership in the group, quote, Guatemalan women who are subject to violence and discrimination but are unable to receive official protection, end quote. She mainly feared her estranged and sexually violent father, who had threatened her and her mother in the past. She decided to flee Guatemala when her father became more aggressive and tried to get her to live with him. The IJ and the BIA denied the case. The IJ denied for many reasons, including on adverse credibility, primarily due to significant omissions in the asylum application as compared to Ms. Pajoy de Leon's testimony. The BIA, however, denied solely on nexus, holding that even if Ms. Pajoy de Leon's particular social group was cognizable, she hadn't shown that she'd been or would be persecuted on account of it. So, As the BIA's decision is the final agency decision, the First Circuit reviewed only the nexus finding, and upheld it. It held that Ms. Pujoy de Leon hadn't been targeted and wouldn't be targeted based on her membership in the particular social group of Guatemalan women. To do that, she would have had to, quote, provide sufficient evidence to forge an actual connection between the harm and her membership in the group, end quote. This she failed to do, as the evidence she provided about her father, quote, relates to her specifically and the nature of her relationship with him, end quote. The First Circuit also affirmed, without much analysis, the denial of withholding and cat protection. But here's a little light at the end of the tunnel. So, obviously an unfavorable case for asylum seekers. However, and for what it's worth, as I read the case, both the BIA and the First Circuit assumed, without deciding, that the group Guatemalan Women is a cognizable particular social group. Worth a sight to me. And that is Pojoy de Leon Vibar. Sticking with the First Circuit, we have Ruiz Varela v. Barr, published on December 23, 2020. This is a case about the nexus requirement under asylum law as well, this time in the context of withholding of removal. Mr. Ruiz Varela is from Honduras and lived in the U.S. for many years without authorization. 
He was placed in removal proceedings and accepted voluntary departure to Honduras in 2009, meaning that although he avoided a removal order and the attendant 10-year bar of return, he was still subject to the 10-year bar due to his unlawful presence. Such are the catch-22s of immigration law. Back in Honduras, Mr. Ruiz Varela worked at his father's successful pool hall, frequented by members of the National Police. These police officers began to extort Mr. Ruiz Varela and his father for protection, escalating to death threats. Mr. Ruiz Varela and his father kept refusing the demands. A bit later, Mr. Ruiz Varela was passing through a checkpoint with his friend on a motorcycle and recognized some of the same police officers at the checkpoint. They recognized him too, and they opened fire, forcing him to fall off the bike. He was shot in the foot and severely beaten on the ground by the police officers and taken to the hospital, of which he had proof. Fabricated criminal charges were brought against him, but the charges were dropped, and some of the police were eventually investigated and fired. And so, the threats from the police got even worse. A year later, Mr. Ruiz Varela fled to the U.S., he entered unlawfully and wasn't detected until 2019, at which point ICE filed a new NTA and initiated new removal proceedings, where Mr. Ruiz Varela applied for asylum and related relief. His asylum application was time-barred. It had been well over one year since he had entered, so the case was really about withholding of removal, which the IJ and the BIA denied on the merits. Mr. Ruiz Varela's claim was based primarily on his membership in the particular social group defined as his immediate family. The First Circuit affirmed the agency's denial. Although it recognized that immediate families will constitute particular social groups, the First Circuit held that Mr. Ruiz Varela hadn't established a nexus between the actions of the police and that group. See, his mother and siblings still lived in Honduras, unharmed, and the evidence showed, according to the court, that the police were extorting, threatening, and harming Mr. Ruiz Varela for purely criminal reasons, not on account of his family membership. So the petition was denied. But I'm a bit curious about one thing. What happened to Convention Against Torture Protection? Apparently, Mr. Ruiz Varela didn't challenge that denial before the First Circuit, but he seems to have a really strong case, particularly in light of the Attorney General's decision this year in matter of OFAS, wherein the AG held that cat claims lie, quote, when the actor misuses power possessed by virtue of law and made possible only because the actor was clothed with the authority of law, end quote and that, quote, it is irrelevant whether the police were rogue, in the sense of not serving the interests of the entire government, or not, end quote. Seems like that's exactly what happened here. I wonder why the cat denial wasn't challenged. And that is Ruiz Varela v. Barr. Finally, we have Min Win v. Barr, published by the Ninth Circuit on December 21st, 2020. This is another one about asylum and particular social groups, albeit with a bit of a twist. Mr. Win is from Vietnam and was admitted into the United States as an LPR in 1997. He got convicted of a bunch of crimes, which an IJ held meant that he lost his LPR status. 
but the IJ then granted Mr. Wynn's application for asylum, holding, as relevant to this decision, that Mr. Wynn had established his membership in a cognizable particular social group defined as, quote, known drug users, end quote. All right, all right. The IJ also held that Mr. Wynn had a well-founded fear of persecution because a 2008 repatriation agreement between the U.S. and Vietnam requires the U.S. to share a deportee's criminal history, and Vietnam has a policy of placing known drug users in compulsory and ominous-sounding rehabilitation centers. But DHS appealed, and the BIA reversed. The BIA held that the particular social group lacks particularity, and that the IJ erred in other ways as well. And the Ninth Circuit affirmed the BIA. It held that the BIA properly applied matter of WGR and matter of MEVG, and that, quote, even if we ignore the ambiguity of the term known, the terms drug and user are broad terms that cause the proposed group to lack definable boundaries and to be amorphous, overbroad, diffuse, or subjective, end quote. This was especially the case as Mr. Wynn did not, quote, provide any evidence on the Vietnamese societal view or Vietnamese criminal law for which drugs could lead to compulsory rehabilitation, end quote. I wonder what would have happened with this decision if he had. But Mr. Wynn will now be removed to Vietnam. And I must note that while the asserted particular social group may rub some listeners the wrong way at first blush, it can't be argued that Mr. Wynn doesn't subjectively actually fear persecution in Vietnam on that basis. After all, he initially, quote, sought to withdraw his applications for relief and agreed to return to Vietnam if the U.S. government would not notify the Vietnamese government of his convictions, end quote. But DHS was the party that urged the court to go forward on the merits of the asylum case, possibly because it could not guarantee that the U.S. government wouldn't inform Vietnam. What a world. Here are some final thoughts on particular social groups. I think it's worth noting that despite the attorneys general various asylum decisions in recent years, the Ninth Circuit did not discuss matter of AB or matter of ACAA or any of the other decisions at all, and stated that, quote, when we review the particular social group determination in an individual case, we ask the legal question of whether the IJ or the board reasonably applied the WGR and MEVG standard in a manner consistent with precedent, end quote. So remember that those two decisions remain the guiding framework for particular social groups. Notwithstanding decisions published by the going on four attorneys general from the Trump administration. And note finally, the Ninth Circuit did reaffirm its 2017 holding in Barajas Romero, in which the Ninth held that although a protected ground must be one central reason to obtain asylum, it need only be a reason to obtain withholding. Now, because the particular social group wasn't cognizable here, the issue was moot but it's good to see that holding reaffirmed, and I hope that it gets picked up in a couple of more circuits. And that is Min Win v. Barr. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. 
I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.